Don't forget to smell the flower's stem, too. Poisonous mushrooms don't taste better, so why eat them? Doing yard work may be the best way to encounter mulch. If dolphins are so dumb, why does science say the opposite? The tales of comets are unsanitary. Tornadoes don't make for life or at all. Bamboo is holding us back, but it's hard to say how. Horses and lions, the main mains. You're like a slug. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. Out of All Doors is a podcast in celebration of all that is out of doors, and not just some of the doors, all of the doors. You probably know it as the outdoors. Don't worry, we call it that too most of the time. As you're probably aware, the month that we're currently in is the month of March. Look at your calendar right now if you don't believe me, or call an honest person and ask him or her. Call a whole bunch of honest people and take a survey. You'll see what I mean. It's March. Do you know in which month the season of spring begins? I'll give you a hint. The name of the month is hidden somewhere in the word marching. If you guessed arching, that's incorrect, and I expect you to deny yourself dessert at your next meal as punishment. The answer I was searching for is, of course, March. Spring begins in March. And what happens in the spring? Well, the weather gets nice and a bunch of non-out-of-all-doorsmen and non-out-of-all-doors women come trotting out of their homes to pay lip service to their love of the outdoors. They make a big production of going for walks, going to parks, having picnics, going for bike rides, and going on and on about how much they love being outside. But where were they when it was cold and icy? And where are they going to be when it's hot and humid and there are biting insects everywhere? They're going to head right back inside. You might occasionally catch these people outside at a beach once it gets hot, but don't hold your breath. They really only go about once every two summers, but they pack multiple bathing suits and pairs of sunglasses, which they change every ten minutes between photo sessions, and then they trickle these pictures out over the course of the next two years to give the impression that they're going to the beach a lot more than they actually are. Some of them will even get haircuts between photo sessions to further the deception. But spring is the time when these duds are actually outside a fair amount of time for real. So you know what that means. Shocking displays of outdoors ignorance. Let me give you an idea of the kinds of things you might have to look forward to this spring. 1. A dummy trying to sell you a bouquet of three limp dandelions for 150 bucks. 2. A doofus doing a high dive into boulders instead of water of an appropriate depth. 3. Some idiot trying to feed the ducks peanut butter cups. I mean, yeah, the ducks are loving it, but now they're going to be hyper all evening and it's going to be impossible to get them to go to bed. 4. Some fool trying to water ski in snow skis, so his whole body explodes, of course, killing everyone in a 50-yard radius around him. 5. A genius, and I use the term sarcastically, who figures out how to halt the aging process using plants commonly found in Midwestern forests, but rides way too slowly on the bike trail. Get out of the way, genius. 6. A dunce whose first instinct when he sees a poisonous snake is to try to get a picture of him sticking his head in the snake's mouth like an old-fashioned lion tamer at the circus. And this isn't only an outdoors ignorance issue, this is just a basic spatial awareness issue, because he should be able to clearly see that his head is never going to fit inside that tiny snake mouth. 
Seven, some dimwit trying to help you push your car out of the ditch, but he's wearing roller skates. Eight, and then another moron shows up to help you push your car out of the ditch, and he's wearing Freddy Krueger gloves, so he's scratching up the whole back of your car. Nine, and watch out for a third numbskull who shows up in a tow truck to pull your car out of the ditch, but he accidentally fastens the hook to the dimwit on roller skates and tows him all the way into town before he realizes his mistake. Ten, and of course, a bonehead who just came outside to get his mail, got lost on his way to his mailbox, and now he's mistaking your stuck car for his mailbox and accusing you of stealing his mail since he caught you red-handed inside of it, hands on its steering wheel, foot on its accelerator, gunning the engine and spitting the wheels in the muddy ditch. We're talking about a man who's confusing car parts for mailbox parts. And before you feel bad, no, he does not have Alzheimer's. He's just a total bonehead, and he doesn't know anything about anything, and now he's coming at you with a metal pipe he found lying in the weeds. Now are you excited that the beautiful spring weather has brought more people outside? Anyway, I'm not saying you're going to encounter these specific imbeciles, but you're going to encounter plenty of cretins like these imbeciles, and I just thought you should be prepared. Am I saying that you should let these ignoramuses spoil your outdoor activities? Well, no. I mean, if it's possible to prevent them from spoiling your outdoor activities, then yeah, definitely do that. But when your car gets stuck in the ditch, what are you supposed to do? You're at their mercy. You need help, and why would you ever assume the guy wasn't going to take his roller skates off before he started trying to push, and that he was just going to keep rolling backwards down the embankment and hitting his face on the trunk? (sighs) Anyway, the heat's going to drive him back inside. Pray for a heat wave. Let's begin, shall we? So with Jason dead and Maya mercifully silent this month, it makes sense that, of course, we would hear from Eugene in Portland again. So here we have a another installment of Woodsman Wisdom. Well, listeners, after hours and hours, days and days, heck, months and months, the cold claw of winter is loosening its icy grip, and we're beginning to breathe once again the warmer breath of a brand new season, spring. Now, if I know one season better than the rest, it's this, the springtime affair. The birds are chirping, the birds are nesting, the birds are flying from those nests and continuing to chirp. The crocodile lays its egg-sperm combo and leaves it to auto-fertilize in the ever-softening mud. The bears climb limply down from their treetop winter nests. The lowly frog emerges from its winter cocoon and the mighty moose crawls groggily out of its hibernation pit deep in the belly of the mountain. And as it crosses that threshold, upon what does it feast its eyes? A brand new world. Brown has become ever greener, and nature holds the promise of new life, fresh starts, and t-shirt weather. Many people don't know that the outdoors is filled with wondrous complexities from animal and plant life to insects, crustaceans, and even gas life. The clouds, once a muggy, wintry fog sitting smugly above our heads, morph into fluffy cotton candy delights floating leisurely in the blue sky, like, well, like I do on the inflatable pool-top easy chair that I've recently dusted off after its garage-bound hibernation. Granted, our pool has probably seen its final season ever since last September when the neighbor kids snuck into it while we were out of town and, pardon my Greek, but they frankly vandalized the crap out of it. I know who they are, but I can't prove it, and frankly their parents, God bless them, probably couldn't afford to replace it even if they were to 
pool, ha, their money together. But springtime is about new beginnings. It's about letting go of the past and starting fresh. So I've decided to forgive the kids being kids and look forward. One problem: Heather doesn't see springtime with the same symbology as I. She's still peeved as all heck and seems determined to stop at nothing to see those kids to get their comeuppance. I frankly don't know whether she even cares about the pool as much as putting the fear of God into those children. But in the fresh daybreak of a new season, promising rebirth and renewal, I see no reason to hold grudges. Heather sees things differently. She's like a real master at holding grudges. She'll hold the thing tightly until she forgets what it originally miffed her. Heck, I couldn't hold a grudge like Heather does if my life depended on it. I think the reason she doesn't get excited about springtime is that, frankly, her world is a world of Februarys. Twelve Februarys a year, it seems. Not for me. Nope. One is enough. But we're not here to talk about February. We're here to talk about March and April. We're here to talk about May and two thirds of June. As the foxes unwrap themselves from their winter swaddling and the seagulls shed their winter coats, springtime in all its yawning glory surrounds us, awakening, stretching, and looking toward a brand new day. Wake up, people, to a fresh breath of life. Warm regards, Eugene, Portland, Maine. Well, that wasn't too bad. That wasn't too bad. And now it's time for another joke with Cousin Brent. Thanks, Adam. Now, I think I should preface this joke with a bit of a disclaimer. I'm not one to be overly politically correct, but I also try not to needlessly offend my audience either. That being said, this joke will certainly be considered controversial by many, and the content centers on a hot topic amongst outdoor enthusiasts. Anyways, I'll just go ahead and begin. It starts with a question: Which kind of tree has the best bark? I know y'all just had a thousand questions rush through your head. How far into the swamp are we pushing this bark? Which hemisphere are we in? Are we using the bark as bait for a termite hunt or as crops for a termite farm? Believe me, I wondered the same things and more. But it's important that we remind ourselves that the answer in this case is a joke, and the joke answer is not at all based in reality. For example, if the answer to the joke was shepherd's wood tree, then at least it would be true if we were constructing a circular ladder. The problem is, then it wouldn't be a joke. No, this bark is only best when answering the joke's question. It's serviceable at many other things, but it's best at none of them. Now, any forester with an acorn scratch will tell you that the best bark belongs to the whiskey wood. Before you pick up the latest issue of Log Bark and Tree and show me that they've given best bark to Pyrenees spruce for the 34th consecutive year, just just hear me out. Now, the whiskey wood's aroma can be overpowering, but it's second to none in its hardiness, and it still maintains an unparalleled malleability. So, whether you're constructing a false log or an acorn guard. The smallest amount of heat applied to the whiskey wood will have you forming it as smooth as melted sand sliding into glass. If you can make the trip through the Great Bear Rainforest, the whiskey wood's only home. Be sure to shave off a few flakes. Now I'm sure some of you will remember the 2013 Sioux Falls Bark Convention when Harrison Hampton accused me in front of dozens of having a sentimental connection to the whiskey wood that clouded my judgment. That accusation saw me voted off of Log Bark and Trees Bark Committee. I think about those days a lot. In fact, I may take this joke as an opportunity to address old Harrison. Now, Harrison, if you're listening, you were right. 
My love of the Whiskey Wood goes beyond its incredible waterproof ability. You were right when you said that when I think of the Whiskey Wood, I can't help but think of poor Irene. I can't help but think of the night we finally set sail on our Whiskey Wood boat and floated along the Yukon. When we drank in the scent in the sky, I closed my eyes and my fingers wandered through her black and tangled hair. It's true that it's not just the stench of the Whiskey Wood that makes me choke up when I'm around it. But what's wrong with that, Harrison? Why can't the best bark remind me of my best love? Strong, but still tender. Rare and amorous, holding everything together. The answer is dogwood. Now we're going to check in with the saint again. After his one-month hiatus, he's back. He doesn't have any new beasts for us, but what he's offered does provide us with some interesting insights into his process, so let's listen. This is the vicious cycle, and I'm the saint. There, we pulled off the trail. Keep pedaling. I know it's tough going through the woods but it'll be worth it in the end once we get there. Keep pedaling, keep pedaling. I know no person has ever likely biked here. Now let's halt and backtrack the bikes. It will look like there were twice as many bikes, but it will become unclear where we got off the bikes once we finally hide them. There, that's far enough. Set it on the ground just like I did mine. Now, notice how I'm burying my bike. While it will slow down anybody trying to track us or confuse any beasts who had the step on us, it will be worth it to confuse them in order for us to remain undetected while we try to find a beast. Now, just keep walking. You're doing a great job. But be calm. There. There we go. Now, here we are at a nice clearing. This will provide a nice spot for us to observe. This might seem a bit unsettling, but trust me, okay? Look at my leg. I need you to cut, make a small cut just right on my calf. You notice that I have other old cuts there which so it's just fine it won't be big and if it gets infected it won't be near my hands I know it's uneasy but it's okay okay good job now now that I have a cut on my calf a small cut on my calf watch as I just roll around and fake like I'm struggling here on the ground in the woods Notice how I get some blood here and there, but also break some branches and also upturn some sod. (sighs) Okay, now that we have that behind us, I'm just going to put this jelly on the wound, which will keep from any dirt getting into it in the future to further protect me from infections. Now, walk following me. Count the turns. One right turn, two right turns, now let's cover a bit of ground. 
three right turns. Okay, that's enough. Feel free to stop here. Tell me what it is that you see before us. That's right, that was our original spot. You can see where I put up the struggle. Now, do you see this hole that I dug? Get in that hole with most of your body, but keep your head out, please. Okay, don't be alarmed, but I'm going to bury most of you. Okay, now that that's complete, I'm going to bury most of my legs and my trunk. Very good. Now it's all coming together. I will now drag this branch over my upper trunk, arms, and head. Imagine if we're looking at us from the outside, how difficult it would be to see. Hold still and mute your breathing, please. Look. Look there before us. The beast sees the blood and it is entranced. It is searching as hard as it can. It longs to find me, but wait. Look at its facial expression. It saw the blood and its expression is that of grave concern. I'm as touched as I am wowed. Sketch it. Keep it together. So much to see. The beast. Such a beautiful environment. The amazing beast. The feelings floating in color, time, and scent. Focus. Try to focus as hard as you can. Drown the music out that you see and sketch because it must be accurate. Amazing. It's like nothing I've ever seen. We must protect the sketches. I will now draw your sketch and you draw mine. This validates both of our memories of the amazing beast that we just saw and its concern for my safety and what looked like a struggle. I must wrestle later with my conscience and letting it remain concerned for my well-being. But for now, we must duplicate our sketches to ensure not only that we validate our memories, but also that we protect a safe copy for Adam. We approach the barn, ramshackle and tumble down, incapable in its current state of holding any animal against its will, but incapable also, in its current state, of denying the will of any animal which desires to enter, to stay, to make it home. In its prime, this barn housed sheep and horses, horses and donkeys, donkeys and lambs, lambs and horses, horses and sows, sows and uncouth hired hands, and on and on, and through it all, they were there too. Up above the loft, hanging from the beams just under the leaky roof. And now, they are the only ones who remain. The other animals are gone. The loft has collapsed. The roof is a whole new level of leaky, but they remain. One might say they own the barn now at long last, although they admittedly didn't pay any money for it or sign any papers or get a deed or anything. It certainly wasn't willed to them. But they're here, and now... 
So are we. We have entered the battery. A garden, not yet blossomed, not yet bloomed, not yet budded even. Stalks, sticks, twigs, all brown as old dirt, which is also present. But the weather is so fine, the sky is so exceedingly blue. The sun shines down upon the garden with its life-givingest of rays. Gentle rains arrive, linger, and depart, bemuddening the old dirt, transforming old dirt to new mud, and yet the garden stays brown. It is, speaking frankly, maddening. This garden, surrounded by a high brick wall, overhung with very bare branches, isn't going anywhere without some bees. But who shall fetch the bees? Who shall coax the bees to our garden? Who shall encourage them to spread a little bit of that busyness our way? A bat, at dusk, flying in the center of a cloud of worker bees, appears over our garden wall. It dives low over our brown and brownish garden, and the cloud of bees disperses among our dormant plant life, disappearing into their work. And the bat, as a little treat to himself for a job well done, eats one bee before flying back over our garden wall and away. Our duskened garden buzzes the collective buzz of the collective bees buzzing. Will the bat ever deign to return? We certainly hope and pray that such is so. We don't want these bees here forever. Some of us are deathly allergic to them, but none of us are allergic to bats. Quite the opposite, in fact. And soon thereafter, our garden was green, beeless, and batful. A sleeping man was bitten on the neck by a common vampire bat. With the bat still clinging to his neck, sucking warm blood from his veins, the sleeping man rose to his feet and began to behave strangely. He retrieved his roommate's electric guitar, plugged it in, and played original monster riff after original monster riff. Then, still asleep, with the common vampire bat's tiny fangs still embedded in his neck flesh and the rest of the bat along for the ride, the man drove to a 24-hour grocery store and walked up and down the aisles, selecting items he did not usually buy. The cashier noticed that the man was asleep and that he had a bat hanging from his neck and that a droplet of blood was rolling down his neck toward his shoulder. But the cashier did not wake the man nor attempt to shoo the bat away. For the cashier saw this situation as an opportunity to shortchange a man and then pocket the quantity of change that had been shorted. But when he tried his scam, the man began to groan and pound his fist on top of the cash register until the cashier gave him the proper change. Then the man left the grocery store, leaving all of his purchased groceries sitting unbagged at the end of the conveyor belt, but not leaving the common vampire bat, which continued to suckle the blood of his neck. And then the sleeping bloodsucky drove his family-style vehicle to the town car ramp, which was designed to allow brave souls in cars to attempt to ramp a giant pit with a constantly burning tire fire occurring therein. And the man almost made it, but near the end of his trajectory, it became clear that the car was not, indeed, going to clear the pit, that it was, in fact, going to crash into the tire fire. So the sleeping man crawled out the window of his car and leapt for safety, and he would not quite have made it if the little common vampire bat sucking his blood hadn't given its wings three sharp flaps. When the man awoke in his bed the next morning, he announced to his dog that he had dreamt of microscopic bats invading his bloodstream. A little boy, for the purpose of this bat-related anecdote, is presenting a report to his class at school. He is supposed to be relating ten interesting facts about the animal of his choice, but he cannot bring himself to speak, for he is one of those people who hates public speaking so much that when asked to do it, 
No matter the level of expectation, they do not do it. The teacher asks him to at least state the name of the animal he researched for the project. Why not start there? But the boy is having none of it. He's petrified. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know where to begin. At least, says the teacher, show us your visual aid. This the little boy can do. He reaches into the back pocket of his vaguely atypical jeans and pulls out what appears to be a folded piece of black paper. But as the little boy unfolds his visual aid, it becomes more and more clear that it is not black paper, but is actually a living, breathing bat. The instant the boy has finished unfolding the bat, it begins to fly around the room, overturning desks, dislodging ceiling tiles, setting the globe spinning far more than is allowed. Bats can overturn desks, says the little boy. Bats can dislodge ceiling tiles. Bats can overspin the globe. Why, he's giving his report. He's listing his ten bat facts. And they're all being proven right in front of the teacher's very eyes. Bats can topple bookshelves. Bats can tear up carpet. The little boy is halfway there. His report is half done. Bats can ruin chalkboards. Bats can shred educational posters. Bats can shatter windows. Bats can fly through shattered windows. And then, the bat gone, the little boy realizes that he is one fact short. Without ten facts, he will fail. In fact, he will be moved from third grade all the way back to kindergarten, which is kindergarten for failures. Bats, he says, floundering. Bats, um, bats steal grade books, rendering this report and all of the reports completely pointless, says the teacher, somehow indicating the absence of the grade book. Hooray, cry the children, all of whom had done terrible jobs on their reports. They all run to the coat room where they find that their jackets have been mercilessly echolocated to the point of flimsiness so extreme they're transparent. I guess I got my 11th bat fact, says the little boy. No one laughs. They're too bummed about their jackets. There's not much to do in a wrecked barn at night, that's true. But it's just kind of a cool place to be. But then, the wind makes an old shutter bang against the wall of the barn, and we run into the night at each of our personal fastest speeds, screaming and pleading for our lives as we abruptly leave the battery. Go to featherwoodframes.com, find some glasses frames you like, order them, think about how they were made from locally sourced wood on pedal-powered machines while you wait for them to arrive. When they do arrive, put them on, wear them around, and when people on the street ask you where you got them, tell them the truth. Don't just tell them what you think they want to hear, tell them the truth. Tell them you got them from Featherwood Frames at featherwoodframes.com. Write it down for them. Spell it correctly. If they're illiterate, uh, uh, teach them to read. Then write it down for them, spelled correctly. Or just buy them a pair of Featherwood Frames glasses frames and have them reimburse you. That might be the better option if you don't have the patience to teach them to read. Or, really, you could just sit down at a computer with this person and help them through the process. You shouldn't be averse to spending time together. You're both going to be wearing Featherwood frames everywhere around town. You might as well get to know each other. People are going to start associating you with each other anyway. For better or worse, you're going to be the Featherwood frames guys now, at least until the trend really catches on. But you'll always be your town's first two, the originals. They'll erect statues of you two together, and then beneath those statues, two plaques. And on each plaque, 
both of you, together, wearing Featherwood Frames glasses purchased on featherwoodframes.com. In time, people may forget which one of you was literate and which one of you was not. Some might come to believe you were both literate. Some might come to believe that neither of you was literate. And you'll be long dead, so it'll be difficult for you to prove that you were the literate one. But they'll have buried you in your Featherwood Frames. Of that you can be certain. In nothing but your Featherwood Frames, actually. In nothing but. Featherwood Frames. Light as a Featherwood. Gentlemen's Mills know that springtime is the best time for spring cleaning. It's right there in the name. Hear it? Spring cleaning. Spring cleaning. Spring. And that's why here and now, mere days before the first day of spring, we're bringing you a selection of Gentleman's Mills many cleaning products and implements, perfect for your home, yard, garden, or anything else you may want to clean during this spring's spring cleaning. Big Broom. Although the same overall length as a normal broom, this broom's bristles start after two inches of wooden handle and go all the way down to the floor, giving you incredible bristling power while sacrificing only some handling capability. Nature's favorite vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum, but this one it merely dislikes. Mr. Humid's Fire. A log soaked in water and diesel that won't stop smoldering in your breakfast nook by plea, request, or bribe. Humidifiers get the fine dust out of the air so it can be wiped or swept as needed. Mr. Humid's Fire is the humidifier's dreaded cousin. Hope Soap. We sure hope it's soap and not just some white powder. Buy it to try it. The Clothing Partial Dryer. For those who prefer that the sleeves stay damp. Golden Oldies. Scrub your sink with this great and highly effective brush. The handle is shaped like Goldie Hawn and the bristles remove food gunk without scratching your surfaces. Warning, you must change oven mitts every 30 seconds or risk scalding from Golden Oldies' steam-powered handle-warming functionality. Tortoise Shell Hider. This is a real tortoise shell of a former tortoise. All corpse and carrion of the tortoise have been removed, and now it provides a way to clean your room by placing all your clutter into the tortoise shell before getting back to your video game with no one the wiser. Mom just thinks it's a big tortoise shell. Thanks, Gentleman's Mills. Laundry Banshee. Toss it in the hamper of dirty laundry, dig him out after 55 minutes of deafening shrieks, and just see what happened in the hamper. Backhoe Hole. Upon three days' notice, a gentleman's mill's founder arrives on your property at an hour of his choosing, digs a hole into an unimportant part of the lawn and sidewalk, fills it with your worst possessions as per his choosing, partially covers the hole and rumbles away. Hedge Clipper Polisher Straightener. For all those times when your hedge clipper polisher gets bent out of shape. Get em Sticks, Special Prison Edition. These are sharpened trash collecting sticks used by real former inmates cleaning roadsides. Pretend you're an outlaw too by using the sticks to clean up your clothes and other sundries. Total Recall, Trash Edition. Just throw that thing in the trash. Helpin' Hulls, Hockey Heaver. Slapshot your trash into the goal, which launches your trash out of the window and into the street while legendary hockey great Brett Hull laughs uncontrollably. An orderly mess, boxed set by Naomi Wadgers. In this seven-volume set, Miss Wadgers gets you in the mood to clean by giving a history of cleaning, book one, followed by a philosophy of tidiness, books two and three, special stories of spring cleaning, book four, and several appendices, books five through seven. 
Read this series in preparation of your own spring cleaning. Do not throw away the books. What a day to die. D-Y-E. Balloons full of dye. Toss them to blend surrounding carpet in with coffee and wine spills, pet and baby accidents and blood. Fire damage ash balloon comes free with purchase of whole house kit. Funkadelic cleaning freakout. Gentlemen's Mills has specially commissioned 70s icons Funkadelic to soundtrack your spring cleaning extravaganza and at only a fraction of their going hourly rate. Warning, do not ask the band to help you clean. Air freshener. It makes the air fresher. Stinkier, but fresher. Fresh is not a synonym for fragrant. Dish Demon. Grinds your dirtiest fine china, then fashions it into a beautiful porcelain angel, which falls in love with itself and covets power, before turning on the device and destroying all the dishes in the neighborhood. Lowers environmental impact of detergent. Gentleman's Mills co-founder shudders at the mere mention of Dish Demon, and it is reluctant to even approach it long enough to sell the wretched being. Easy Dispose Bless This Mess Sign This sign provides you with a bit of welcome candor while you clean, and after you've cleaned, it can easily be composted with your other natural waste. Horsepower Every item you find that can be discarded is whisked away by a team of draft horses to the nearest dump. Each item requires its own voyage to avoid overburdening the horses. Was it the robot? This automaton has been expertly crafted over a period of 11 years and now comes to your house specially equipped to tell you exactly what that thing is you found under the couch. Adults and children find was it both adorable and useful. Humongous rag. Warning. In clinical tests, this rag proved to be too large for 8 out of 10 maids. Tiny clothes. Clothing decals. These stickers of tiny Victorian dresses, sweaters, nuns' habits, tarps, and other modest clothing choices can be placed over Dad's car calendar bikini babes to ensure the garage is family-friendly prior to cleaning. Gummy what? Melted gummy worms crafted into a slipshod riding mower. Trick of the light. This is a set of extreme light dimmers that reduces your house's light fixtures down to 3 or 4 watts apiece, casting your home in cave-like dimness that can only technically be called light. Who can gripe about a mess they can't see? Problem solved. Trademark. Everything but the stain. This special cleaning agent removes everything from your stained clothing except the stain. What is clean? A special recording of legendary philosopher's Jeopardy, certain to confuse your oppressors out of enforcing your stupid chores. Clean like you mustn't. Our only approved parental counter to our What is Clean product mentioned above. Straight printouts of sentimental heirlooms and historical relics over the estate's trash and watches the rebellious kids toss everything with delight. Soldier of Gutters. Wearing this official-looking uniform will make cleaning the gutters feel like a sacred and honorable duty, except that the pants look kind of stupid. Head nod to tidiness. The original real estate ad photo of your property, four tons of crap ago. Last of the party. Inflatable passed-out party-goers to place amongst your filth. Some have pull cords that recite pre-recorded memories of how much fun it was making this big mess at the party and speculative remarks about who's going to have to clean it up. This product will cause you to feel spiteful while you clean. Mudroom Purification Ceremony Ceremonial Gloves They keep 95% of blood off of your gnarled claw-like hands and help you maintain a firm grip on a wide variety of sacrificial knife handles, including most kinds of bone. And now stay tuned for a special offer from one of Gentleman's Mills co-founders, The Dandy. This is Gentleman's Mills co-founder, The Dandy. I'm here to tell you today about the Whippoorwill Opportunity. 
Whippoorwill. Whippoorwill. Just like the bird name is spelled. This is an opportunity to buy two mysterious tickets. Each grants you access to behind one of three doors. You don't know which until you go through, and you can only buy two tickets. So there's going to be a door that you just don't get to see behind. Each ticket costs $1,000, which sounds like a lot until you hear what you get. Whip poor Will. Behind door number one, you go in and get whipped on the butt. You'll be sad you got this door, but hopefully you bought more than one ticket. Butt whippings hurt. That's whip. Another door you go into and are surrounded by actors dressed like monks, and you swear an oath of poverty. The monks are fake, but the oath is real. You're poor for life. That brings us to door number three, will. If your ticket grants access to the will door, you get written in on the spot to our millionaire friend's will. He has no heirs and is really sick. So once he passes, you are financially set, period. Think of what you'll do with a million. This chance alone is worth playing. Whipper will. Whip, poor, will. Buy your tickets today. Because not having a chance to be a millionaire is for the birds. We haven't heard from him since episode two, but it's time now to again check in with our amateur cryptozoologist friend, Eldon Langley. This is Eldon Langley again. I previously shared some of my experiences with the Bigfoot and how close I've been to conclusively proving his existence. Today I'd like to share some of my experiences with another cryptozoological wonder, this being the Loch Ness Monster. After the Bigfoot and his brethren proved to be indisposed to my efforts at contacting them, I set off to find a much grander beast, this being Nessie, or the Loch Ness Monster. The flight to Scotland cost me much of my meager savings, but I was able to land in Edinburgh and hitchhike north to the lake. What follows are my encounters with the Loch Ness Monster. As soon as I arrived at the edge of the lake, I set up camp. I looked like quite the outdoorsman in my tattered shirt and cargo shorts, but really, they were the only clothes I had left. I set myself up underneath a tarp, pulled what little else I had in my bindle out, including my camera, and waited for Nessie to appear. I was tempted to splash the water or shine my flashlight out into the water to try to attract her, but I first wanted to be patient and let her come to me. I waited as the sun went down and then continued watching the water. The moon reflected in a long white line. It was very beautiful, but there was no movement. I watched and watched and watched until finally I fell asleep, camera clutched to my breast. It wasn't until the middle of the night that I was cruelly awoken, soaked to the bone, my bindle washing away, my tarp lost somewhere, only my sodden clothes and camera and me, and dry as could be on the ground nearby, a caricature drawing of myself, dripping wet and frowning. The drawing was signed, Nessie. 
The next day I set out to actively find Nessie. I tried to rent a local canoe, but price issues disallowed it. Instead, I snuck around the perimeter of the lake until I found an unguarded canoe, and I started rowing it out into the lake. I saw the owner come out and start shouting at me, but I was too far into the lake at that point. I rowed and I rowed until all I could see was water. It was a beautiful summer day, the sun glistening off the lake. First I saw it to my left, and then to my right. <laughs> Her tail... It splashed out of the water and then back into it in a perfect parabola, always a moment faster than my camera shutter. She seemed to be circling me, coming in closer and closer. Just as I thought Nessie was going to surface, <laughs> well, nothing. I waited and waited, but she didn't emerge. Then I saw it. She was on the far edge of the lake was carrying a boat on her back faster than the boat could ever go by itself. She soon delivered the boat to me, and I saw it was the local constable's boat. Looks like you have some stolen property there, me said. Yeah, but did you see the monster, I asked? Come on, up you go, he said, lifting me into his boat to handcuff me. As the constable took me away to jail, I saw Nessie capsize the canoe I'd stolen, clapping the water with her mighty tail. After I got out of jail, I headed right down to Loch Ness to catch a glimpse of her. My clothes had mostly rotted off in jail, and I was barely decent. Several women and children gasped as I hobbled up to the lake shore. I didn't care. I had a monster to document. I knew she was listening, Nessie was, so I called out to her. Hey, Nessie, I shouted. I know you're there. Just come out and stop fooling around. Sure enough, she emerged right away. I looked around for vindication from the women and children, but they were already running away screaming. And there was Nessie, giant and green, with horrible teeth and wicked eyes, staring down at me. What happened next wasn't the introduction I'd hoped for. Nessie picked me up, pile drove me into the ground, then flipped me head over heels three times. Next, she strangled me for almost a full minute before sending me twirling into the water. As soon as I splashed down, she was right underneath me again, and she headbutted me into the sky. I had nothing to do but float into the sky and then come crashing back down into the water. At this point, Nessie grabbed the little clothes I had left and flung me to the shore, where... <laughs> What to my wondering eyes should appear, there was Bigfoot himself. As soon as he saw me, he looked down in what was apparent benevolence. Was he here to save me from Nessie? Was he here to save me from Nessie's wrath? No, he wasn't. No, indeed. Instead, Bigfoot grabbed me by the neck and gave me the worst Dutch rub I've ever experienced. After he was done, he flew me into the arms of the waiting constable, who charged me again, this time with public indecency. By this point, I was fully nude. But the monster, I cried, the Bigfoot. Don't try to monster me, he said. He took me in a squad car headed for jail. As I looked through the back windows of the squad car, I saw Bigfoot and Nessie hug, Bigfoot holding my camera to document the image. That image is still out there, somewhere.
perhaps at the bottom of Loch Ness. Hello again. This is the dandy of Gentleman's Mills. After introducing the Whippoorwill opportunity a few minutes ago, I was talking to Out of All Doors host Adam Drent as he was trying to sort out what happens if you swear the oath of poverty and get written into the dying man's will. Our conversation very naturally drifted to the clear fact that the Whippoorwill opportunity is 100% a scam. We don't plan to write anyone into a will, and we don't even know of a rich guy. Everyone's two tickets are always for whip and poor, leaving all participants with a whipped stinging butt and an empty bank account to explain to the missus if they bought those two tickets. The only ones to really come out ahead on this opportunity were Gentleman's Mills co-founders. Until now, that is. Seeing as how out-of-all-doors listeners are certainly not going to participate, I'm offering a kickback of 20% of all ticket revenue stemming from your referrals. Listeners, when your friends and family sign up, have them enter the promo code on the entry form consisting of the words out of all doors with no caps or spaces, followed by your bank routing number for us to appropriately route your kickback. We're back again with another installment of Fundamentals of Hermitry with intrepid young correspondent Cayman Bird. As I've explained previously, the Out of All Doors blog, when it was at its peak, was the premier spot for hermits on the internet. And though the blog is now gone, its URL claimed by a backstabbing usurper, our connection to the hermit community remains very much intact. So once again, we sent our intrepid young correspondent, Cayman Bird, to talk to a man known as Hermit Ted. We hope you'll find the resulting interview compelling. Today we are speaking with another hermit in our series of hermit interviews for the Out of All Doors podcast. And his name is Hermit Ted. Thank you for letting me talk to you, Hermit Ted. The pleasure is all yours. Well, are we really going to start the interview on that hostile of a note? I was polite and respectful, wasn't I? Oh, sure. As polite and respectful as an ignorant grouper can be. Groupers? Ignorant? Yes, grouper. You know, a person who lives in groups, herds, flocks, cities, towns, villages... Close-minded slaves, dumb, simple, unenlightened, ignorant groupers. Not like me. A bona fide solitariat. What's a solitariat? I thought you were a hermit. You call that respectful? Well, there is no mention of any of this when we set up the interview. I told you I was doing a segment on fundamentals of hermitry, and you didn't bat an eye. Regardless... So you call anyone who isn't a solitariat a grouper? Yep. Some of the boys wanted to call you all city folk or townies. I worked hard to come up with a more scientific classification for all you ignorant, unenlightened deniers of the superior solitariat lifestyle. That's the kind of refinement I seek in my thoughts and in my speech. A refinement that comes through years and years of being secluded and working on becoming more and more enlightened all the time. Average groupers can't even tell what I am talking about most of the time. I can see that. I can barely make sense of you right now. You see, enlightenment has a way of changing your perception of things. Oh, really? 
And here I thought it just improved your short-term memory. That's your grouper upbringing fogging your brain functions. Your brain would be much sharper and think much more logically if you had some isolation and suffering in your life. If you were closer to nature all the time instead of power lines and cappuccino counters. Isolation and suffering, huh? Yes, the two key principles of the solitary lifestyle are like two pillars, which are really more like two doors. Doors through which you can access the higher planes of consciousness and higher understanding of all reality. Without walking through these two doors, you will never have the keys to unlocking your full potential as an advanced human being. So it's key, pillar, door, keys, huh? Exactly. Maybe you aren't as dull as some of the other groupers I have met. You seem to be catching on a little quicker. Well, I guess I just got a little lucky. Hmm. I tell you what, I like you. And you seem like you are a good student. You came here to learn about our ways. I will give you a hand. I will give you a gift that will help you on your way to enlightenment. If I accept the gift, can I still take baths? <laughs> Very funny. But you might not want to if you really start to understand what I am about to teach you. First, let me explain a little more about how the keys, pillars, door, keys work. Isolation. One must separate oneself from all of the people and forsake the group activities that you have become so accustomed to, having only your thermit to keep you company. My what? Oh, sorry. Right, your thermit. The inner thought hermit. You have to talk to someone while you are out here in isolation, so all solitarians will eventually find their fully formed inner thermit way up in the upper levels of their subconscious, that they will then be able to have insightful and rewarding conversations about anything and everything. Thermit, huh? Not solitarian. No. The incorporation of the word hermit in the word thermit isn't degrading because that's what they call themselves. So, anyway, your thermit can be your only companion through the long days and nights of the second key's pillar's door key on the path to enlightenment. So why would you need a companion? I thought being isolated was superior in every way to being in groups. The only reason the thermit is there is so that you can transition slowly from the grouper mentality of constantly needing to have someone else to complain to over to the hermit way of complaining to no one and nothing. The thermit is there as a fairy man or a fairy woman to ferry you safely from the brain-numbing shores of living in herds over to the greener pastures of not having neighbors. That voyage can be a little disorienting, and you need someone to guide the ferry while you shiver in your skin on the cold waters of the River of Suffering. Cold waters of the River of Suffering? Sounds pleasant. Oh, it's not nearly as bad as it sounds. 
I think back on my transition period with great fondness. Basically, the suffering is just a period of embracing life's misery as sort of a cleansing fire. It burns out all the distractions and old ways that come from living in society and allows your mind to think clearly and concentrate on all the new ways of thinking and expanding your consciousness. Sort of like a fast. But instead of fasting from food... You fast from comfort. Cleansing fire, misery. Alright, pretty standard stuff so far. What about this gift? Oh, right, right, your gift. Okay. (laughs) So, hold out your hand. I have it right here. Looks like a jewelry box. Are you planning on proposing to me? (laughs) You are a funny guy. You would make a great solitariat. I think your thermit would probably be very witty. And of great comfort to you in your transition period. I am excited to see if you decide to convert to our ways. Don't hold your breath. This box is empty. Oh, is it? Yep. See? Nothing. Oh, well, shake it out in your hands there. I'm sure I gave you the right one. Nope. Nothing here. (laughs) And now, young man, you are on your way. You may start the great journey. What are you talking about? You have made the first step on the pathway to enlightenment, young student. You have started your journey of the suffering. That intense disappointment that you're feeling now will only increase tenfold and more as you endure the agonizing length and breadth and depth of the transition period. You will look at what your life has become and think, this is empty, there's nothing here. And the isolation will weigh down on you and the suffering will rise up within you and crippling remains of your grouper mentality will cower and retreat. I'm not really disappointed in this gift. Really, that would imply I expected something good out of it. But look at this place. Look at you. I was honestly relieved you didn't give me possum droppings or some of your filthy beard hair. Oh. Anyways, I think isolation and suffering are great for you. Certainly, I'd never want to deprive you of all the isolation and suffering you can get. But they're not for me. But I'd know I'd definitely rather be a hermit than a solitariat. And I would never be a hermit. Never. This has been Cayman Bird for Fundamentals of Hermitry for Out of All Doors. The five people you meet at a wilderness survival seminar. Number one, the old pro. Let's get one thing clear right from the get-go. This is not the old pro's first wilderness survival seminar. He's seen more than probably even the instructor of this thing, and is just really doing it all to hone what skills he's already developed through time-tested trials and tribulations over the years. The old pro will regale anyone who will listen about Native American survival strategies, including blood cleansing and sweat bathing. The old pro is distinguished by his tribal tattoos, the meaning of which he refuses to talk about, claiming the other attendees are just not ready. At the seminar, 
He can most often be seen misidentifying knots, getting hopelessly entangled in a two-man tent, and running screaming at the first sign of a spider web. Number two, the newborn. Though he speaks few words, the newborn is one of the Wilderness Survival Seminar's strongest members. Crawling mercilessly through arid desert terrain as well as being effortlessly carried up the highest mountain, the newborn is born to survive in any environment. While other members of the team bicker amongst themselves and break down emotionally, the newborn carries on. Eyes open with wonder and merriment, hands ever drawing him onward, a big boy who never ever needs a nap. Number three, the Business Survival Seminar Guest Speaker. Behold the Business Survival Seminar guest speaker's wise words as he relates climbing a mountain to hitting an important marketing goal, fording a stream to engaging a symbiotic partnership with another company, and killing a deer to overcoming weakness and achieving personal success. While the Business Survival Seminar guest speaker achieves many personal milestones and survives a great number of figurative hardships, he's most easily identified in the Wilderness Survival Seminar for dying instantaneously. Number four, Caitlin, 29 years old. Okay, so, um, <laughs> where do I even begin? Like, I think Caitlin, 29 years old, got on the wrong bus or whatever because she was supposed to be auditioning for Love Find, the hot new dating show you've seen. And so now here she is in her best pumps and she's got this sleek evening gown and she's like stuck out in the woods with all the bugs and she's thinking, um, yeah, maybe not. But she's here now, so she figures she might as well drink lemonade or whatever. And so she gets down in the dirt and the muck and starts rubbing sticks together. And the whole time she's totally thinking, is this really happening? Is this my life? Like, seriously? But Caitlin, 29 years old, goes hard at whatever she does. So first she wanted to find love, and yeah, that didn't work out. But now she wants to do this uh, survive in the wilderness thing, and you better believe she's going to survive it. And you know what else? She's going to look good doing it. She's on top of her game, and not even the newborn can stop her. Go, Caitlin, 29 years old. Go! Number five, caveman. Caveman hit beast on head. Beast fall down. Caveman eat beast. Caveman build shelter from beast carcass. Caveman make fire with rock and piece of grass. Caveman brush teeth with cactus. Caveman scratch back with entire pine tree. Caveman blow nose on bison. Caveman curse at constellation. Caveman drink lake, whole lake. Caveman share beast meat with Caitlin, 29 years old. Caveman club the old pro on head. Eat remains of business survival seminar guest speaker's corpse and cradle newborn. Good baby. Good boy. Caveman like baby. Caveman belch. Caveman survive. So last month we lost one of our own. Jason, um, never really learned his last name he was shot in the head in my studio of all places by who well we may never know i bet you were listening to this episode expecting to find some answers but sometimes life just doesn't play out that way so let's just say harrison did it i mean jason made a lot of enemies but 
he really sort of put Harrison out by making him give away all of his bird watching stuff and trade it in for sauce based stuff a few episodes ago. And that's really not enough to drive anyone to murder. But sure, it was the bird watching guy, Harrison Blum. And let's never speak of it again in the continuity of the podcast or otherwise. Anyway, I wanted to do some sort of tribute for the guy, and in doing a bit of research on Jason, which was sort of hard, not knowing his last name, and seeing as the second I heard he was dead, I went straight and grabbed all of his stuff and threw it in my trash can, but I ended up stumbling upon his YouTube page somehow. Again, let's not really worry about the details. So yeah, Jason had a YouTube page, and without further ado, in tribute to our fallen contributor, here are some samples of Jason's work. This first one is from a video titled Unboxing Number One. There are no unboxings two, three, or beyond, but, you know, he was a man who wore many hats, as you'll see. Okay, guys, it's me, Jason. Today is the Big Whoa unboxing video, and first I just want to say thank you guys so much for your comments. Hey, Adam here again. Just wanted to jump in and say that there was, at the time of my viewing, one comment Posted by SK Balls with a Z, it reads as follows. First, now back to the video. And so here in front of me is a shipment I just received of random stuff I ordered on Amazon using Adam's credit card while pretty messed up on the pink pills, had sent to Adam's house, and then forgot about. And I am pumped! Okay. Oh, man. Okay. First, all right, first there's some packing peanuts. I will be reusing these, I can promise you. Did someone say Santa Beard Art Project? Below that, let's see. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Oh, ho, ho, ho. what is this, my flex belt? Guys, this flex belt, like, literally flexes your belt area, and I will, I promise you, be using this, like, constantly. Okay, next, a Samsung Galaxy Prime Cool Boots and some jelly bracelets. 12 of them of assorted colors. And below that, <laughs> oh, no, no way. Wait for it. It is a body conditioner, 16 ounces, African Paradise Brightening Body Conditioner. This smells like fresh squeezed juice, but in a good way. It smells, guys, this smells so nice. Oh, I'm putting some on right now. Opening the bottle. Removing the safety seal. And, oh man. Oh man. It's green. Like a mint. Green. I was hoping it would be mint green. Oh my gosh. Okay. It says right here. I'm not lying. I am reading this right off of the bottle. It is infused. I will smell and look so good. Ah, it is a good time to be Jason. All right, so that was the late, great Jason's unboxing one. Let's just move right along. The one called Condom Snorting Attempt, I guess. And here we go. Hey, guys, Jason here, attempting the Condom Snort Challenge. I have one, I'd say, regular-sized condom, spermicide, and lubricant-free. Here it goes up my nose. So that's that video. Good work, Jason. Here's one called Lip Sync number 176, and there are actually a ton of these on Jason's YouTube page. Unfortunately, due to copyright laws, we can't play most of them. 
On the bright and fairly strange side, Jason did post this one video of himself driving while lip-syncing along to one of his own performances from Out of All Doors. I know Jason did not own a car, so that really only partially explains why he's driving an empty school bus in the video, which I can only assume he stole. Anyway, here's the clip. Well, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. For we know we need each other, so we better call the calling off off. Big finish together now! Let's call the whole thing off! Oh man, (laughs) I am so talented. You guys notice I did both parts? Jason had many facets, and maybe this one is best left unseen, as it currently mostly is with three views, but... We remember the man for who he was, and this was most definitely a part of whatever that was. So, lastly, this video is simply titled, Sexy ASMR Roleplay. Shh, shh, hey there, Bess, it's me, Harley. Good morning. I know I conked you on the noggin pretty hard there last night, but my pudding, Mr. J, insisted. Those cuffs too tight? Aw, oh, poor bats. If it was up to me, I'd untie ya. But Mr. J has big plans for ya, honey. I'd tell you what they are, but then I'd have to kill ya. Ha <laughs> ha. Hey now, don't you get any bright ideas? I got my trusty tranquilizer and I'm not afraid to use it. So you better just watch it, mister. Maybe you're just grumpy because you haven't eaten. Feeling a little bit peckish? I got some snacks here. Oh no, I got some crumbs on my clothes here. Better brush them off. You're looking a little angry there, Bass. And me, I'm just trying to be polite hostess and all. But I'm thinking I might have to get rough with you. So maybe we should just get to the torturing then. Maybe play a little game. Oh, I'm not talking about those kind of games. Even if you are all tied up already, maybe if you're lucky we could start off with a little spanking anyway. Mom, I told you not to interrupt me. Okay, I'll have a a PB&J. No crust. And don't disturb me again. Just leave it at the door. Either way, I'm planning on making you squirm. Maybe we start with a card trick? I bet you like the pictures of my cards. You know, Bats, I never noticed just how cute you are. Now that we're alone, maybe you're thinking just how cute I can be. So, Plus, yeah, it's just this. I do not get it. Maybe if you're real and I didn't even like mention the clown makeup and jester like hat. That? I bet you like that, Bats. And that goes on for another 26 minutes. So... Here's to our fallen comrade, Jason, we hardly knew you, but now I think we maybe know a fair deal more about you than anyone should know about anyone else. And from all of us here at Out of All Doors, we're really sorry Harrison, the birdwatching guy, killed you, which we will never mention again, so don't ask about it. Close your eyes. Don't worry about who else has or has not closed his or her eyes. Worry about your own eyes. Are they closed? If they are, then you have nothing to worry about. Your job is complete for now. You've done everything that's been asked of you so far, and that should be enough for you. Besides, how would you know if anyone else's eyes were open if yours were closed? 
Are you really reaching out to blindly feel their faces with your hands and discovering that their eyes are open when your fingers press against their bare eyeballs? Or, much more likely, are you just peeking? You find yourself in a yard, spacious and freshly mown. You are standing before a large, majestic tree. On the ground around you are many tools, and there is also a stack of fresh lumber. Yes, today, in order to relax, you are going to do some work. Many people work in order to relax. They work with their hands, on private projects that they enjoy. And that's what you're going to do today. You're going to labor out here in this beautiful spring day. You're going to work with your hands. And when you're done, you'll be relaxing in your newly constructed treehouse, built with your own hands, for your own purposes, according to your own designs, as narrated to you by me. You pick up a saw and a measuring tape and a ladder and some saw horses. You use all that to cut the boards for the floor of your treehouse and put it up in the tree and it's nice and secure. You did a great job. Everything's even and sturdy. So there, now your treehouse has a floor. You're making progress. Doesn't that feel satisfying? Now it's time for walls. Somewhere in the neighborhood, a neighbor's lawnmower sings its monotonous anthem, making long grass shorter and giving short grass something to think about. You gather up some tools and lumber, and, as you do, a butterfly lands on your nose, and you do that thing where you go cross-eyed to look at it, like Bambi. But don't worry, that's where the similarities to Bambi end, by which I mean you're not going to have a parent shot by a hunter or flee from a raging forest fire in this visualization exercise. Just the butterfly on the nose cross-eyed thing, and maybe a female fawn love interest. Now let's get up there in that tree and build some walls on top of that treehouse floor. You work fearlessly, like a construction worker building New York City skyscrapers in the early 1900s, prancing from branch to treehouse floor to branch again, arms laden with tools and boards all the while. At one point, you even stop to eat lunch out of an old-timey wrought iron lunchbox, sitting on a branch with your legs dangling down and your socks halfway off of your feet and the laces of your shoes tied around the dangling toes of your socks so that the shoes are dangling down the farthest of all. Your lunch is a summer sausage frozen solid, a thermos of sugar-free Kool-Aid, and a cup-sized cake frosted with apricot-colored, peach-flavored, orange-scented, tangerine-textured frosting that sounds exactly like grapefruit. Lunch finished, you decide it's time to finish doing something else, building the walls of your treehouse. So that's what you do, and when you've done that, you admire your handiwork for a long time before you realize you forgot to build a door. But do you pout? No, you don't. Much as your naturally pouty lips might tempt you to do so, you resist. Instead, you build a door and you slap it on there, bing, bang, plunk. And then you waltz in through that door and stand inside your treehouse. Now it has everything you could possibly want. A floor, walls, and a door. Nothing is missing. Nothing could possibly be missing. There's even a ladder leading from the ground up to the treehouse's door. You built that at the same time as the floor. It's your treehouse dream house. You begin to jump up and down in your excitement over how complete the treehouse is. Your head rising higher than the tops of the walls. The top of your head not striking against anything. The sunlight filtering down through the highly visible leafy branches directly over your head. You thought you wouldn't be able to build a complete treehouse, but now look at you. 
Your jubilation gives way to delicious arrogance, and you scramble down the ladder to gather up all your tools and all the remaining lumber, of which there is just enough for a second floor or a fifth wall, which you obviously will not need under any circumstances. You heap the tools and lumber together in a heap, piling them into a pile, a jumble of jumbled supplies, and then you set them ablaze, and within seconds the tools and lumber are, collectively, an ashy ash pile, an adjective-noun combination that relates in no way to the cherished memory of the now-deceased man with the very similar name, Archie Axe Pile. Then, with all those obsolete tools and all that extraneous lumber dealt with in a mature manner befitting the mature adult your birth certificate mistakenly declared you to be when it was written, but which you have since grown into, thereby making your birth certificate seem like some sort of soothsayer in paper form, you climb the ladder back up to your new complete treehouse, and you stand inside of it, soaking in the intoxicating sensation of a done-job well. You disallowed the devil from turning your hands into one of his workshops. You accomplished your goal through activities that resulted in your brow becoming sweaty. You caused your elbows to extrude a fair amount of grease. You took your back and you put it right into it. And you ensured that no passers-by would ever dare to ask you if you were working hard or hardly working, because from one glance, those passers-by would have known the answer to their question already, and would not have felt any need to ask it. And why on earth would anyone ask that question, unless they sincerely did not know the answer, but sincerely wanted to know the answer? And then a brief rainstorm passes overhead and you get soaked. You forgot to build a roof on your treehouse. With no constructive recourse available to you, you are swiftly overtaken by a violent fury. You begin to punch and kick at the walls and floor and door of your treehouse, crying out like a man possessed by a demon prone to vocalizations of extreme displeasure. Wood fragments fly across the yard in all directions, but mostly in the directions that you're punching and kicking and deliberately hurling the fragments. That which you had built up, you now teareth down. You break the door over your knee like a brittle piece of flat, crisp bread, cracker-like in such a multitude of ways. You stomp that treehouse floor, which you so lovingly crafted with tools and lumber, into ugly splinters which rain down from the tree like the kind of rain a young woman would never want to experience while having her senior pictures taken outside. And then there is no treehouse left. You've pummeled it into smithereens. You climb down out of the tree and stand there, panting, sweating, and feeling... Serene, at peace, more at peace than you ever did when you were working on the treehouse, more at peace than you were when you thought you'd finished building a complete treehouse. Why? Because you just experienced a little thing I and everyone else like to call catharsis. Your tantrum got everything out of your system, and now look at you, the picture of serenity. And guess what? You can do this visualization exercise over and over again in your head when you're on your own. Build a treehouse, forget the roof, get soaked, destroy it. Build a treehouse, forget the roof, get soaked, destroy it. And, in so doing, you will be better enabled, too, everywhere you go. Take the peace of out of all doors with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors.
Thank you for listening to the seventh episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, J.J. Evans, Casey By, Ben Bird, Cayman Bird, Chris Nichols, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make as the mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart style phones. We'll be back in a month with Episode 8 of Out of All Doors.